if we admit that we're not perfect in this way, the whole thing could come. It's that glass house thing, you know, the whole thing could come shattering down, which is such a fascinating detriment to even beginning the conversation. Because if I can't say to you in relationship, hey, this thing that you're doing is hurting my feelings without you going into a shame spiral, I never get to be heard. I never get to be heard when I say like, this is hurting me because I'm too busy dealing with your shame. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Leaving evangelicalism is tough, but it can be even tougher when you're just full of questions, especially questions about the text upon which your faith used to be based. If the Bible isn't what we were taught, what is it? Does it even matter anymore? If it's not the Word of God, can it be trusted? Is it okay to just not read it anymore? Spoiler, it is. Our brand new digital course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction, will be a safe place to ask these kinds of questions and to learn more about the history of this complicated text while dialoguing with other ex-evangelicals about the experience of letting go of this black and white framework in favor of a more nuanced and loving one. Join us live in July for an incredible journey through the Bible. For the time being, this course is only open to Patreon patrons, so if you're interested in how to make a sense of the Bible post-deconstruction, head to www.sophiasociety.org and click on the banner at the top to learn all about the course and how to become a patron. But don't wait, because registration for the course closes July 1st, 2021. Today we are thrilled to have on the show two of the four amazing hosts of Heathen Podcast, and today we have Anissa Nashira and Karen Thurston. Anissa is a birth worker and birth justice activist whose nonprofit, Rehope Inc., provides no-cost holistic birth support for teen parents in San Diego, California. Karen is a writer, poet, and lyricist whose work centers on religious deconstruction, motherhood, and social justice. As I mentioned earlier, they are also half of the hosting team for Heathen Podcast, where for the past five years, they have been creating safe space for folks in the process of moving away from their religious origins into that lovely uncharted territory (laughs) outside of that religious um, tradition. And they have been providing resources and welcoming uncomfortable conversations about identity, faith, patriarchy, race spirituality, and what it means to do community without shame, which is something I think we are all very interested in. So welcome to both of you. Thank you guys for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. 
we're excited. So we are heretics and you guys are heathens. So yeah, this yeah, is like a perfect. Or yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Somewhere. <laughs> that, that might be where we're going after this podcast. It's going to be a party. We just have no idea. Yeah. So we could go, we could go in a thousand different directions, but let's just kind of start with the basis uh, and the basics. So tell us a little bit about yourselves, how you came together as friends, and, and maybe in particular, uh, can you describe your unicorn safe space of a church that you reference in, in San Diego? Can you see you uh, right? Yeah, it's a lovely place. It really is. So, um, so I'm Anissa Nishira, and I, yeah, I, I'm trying. I was thinking, I'm like, I'm a mom. I have four kiddos, and I'm a birth worker, like you said. And I have been, um, well, I was raised in a church. Grew up Southern Baptist, but I, and I was born here in San Diego. Um, lived here my whole life for the most part. Went to Oklahoma for a while, so there, mm. that's fun. That's a fun part of my my journey. Um, oh, all my relatives, like my whole, all both sides of my family are from Oklahoma, and I was raised Southern really? Baptist too. So we should chat later. Oh, <laughs> yeah, then yeah, that was a, it. Was quite the culture shock. I didn't go there until I was. Um, out of college. So yeah, so I, I spent time doing Christian ministry. It sounds so weird to say my whole <laughs> life. Um, uh, and then I was done, which we can talk more about later, but I was, I was done. I was over it. Um, I was three kids deep and drowning and just done with, and, and it all for me kind of started with figuring out that like, patriarchy was kind of the thread. Like I started realizing that the things that I had been told my whole life in the church, if anyone had said them to my daughter, then mm. I would probably punch them in the face. And so mm. um, <laughs> I was just like, whoa, like I, I so I just kind of went on a, I went on a journey. That was kind of the real beginnings for me of deconstruction. And, um, but then we wound up back in my husband and I wound up back in San Diego and um, to get family support for all of our children. And I, he said to me, this guy that I met on the internet, he met this guy. I was like, okay. As all good stories like, begin. Right. right? Yeah. I, was like, I met this guy. I want to have, he goes to this church and I was like, we've said we are done with church. Like I'm over it. So he went to the to sojourn the day like I was busy I was actually doing my very first doula training that weekend and he took all of our children and went to this church we had never been to even though we were like super over it super done and he came back and he was like I, we got to go one more time and I was like what like we do not go to church anymore like it's not what we're doing I no and then I was like I'll go one I'll go one time I'll go one time <laughs> And I went one time and I was just like, oh my goodness, we found our people. Like what is mm. happening here? And it was, it was kind of a whirlwind. And I mean, we were pretty skeptical for a while, but for us, there was this real space to be where we were. Nobody was pushing us to be anything other than where we were at. Mm. Um, also no one was asking us to do anything that helped a lot. Um, mm. <laughs> after, mm. right. you know, 20 years of like, can you, can you do this thing for free? Um, can you do all of these? <laughs> yeah. So yep. there was a lot of just for, for us, there was this wholeness and this like people really like kind of coming around us and, and being okay with where we were. Like I, we weren't scaring anybody off with like, Oh, I don't think we believe any of this 
but you, you guys seem nice and the snacks are good. So (laughs) (laughs) there, that kind of, for us, like little by little kind of rolled into, yeah, these are our people. Like, and, and there was a lot of talk about not needing to, uh, our beliefs were not what was holding us together. And mm-hmm. I needed that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good explanation of what Sojourn Grace Collective feels like to me is it is a community of people that is based around fostering the wholeness of the people in the community, as opposed to like, we all believe this same thing together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that posture was, uh, just revolutionary for me. That was something I had never encountered in my 30 years of (laughs) being in the church and doing church leadership and all of those things and really kind of trying to create some version of that space. This is the first time that I, I feel like I've walked into a place where it's actually happening in a healthy, thriving, honest way. Um, yeah, but it was fun for me. That's actually how we met. We met, um, (laughs) Through, through Sojourn Grace. And I had um, moved down to San Diego as kind of a Hail Mary for my marriage that was ending. We were like, well, maybe if we just move away from everyone we know, that will help. Um, <laughs> don't recommend. And um, actually, I do. Because at the end of the day, our my ex-husband and I are wonderful friends. And our marriage needed to end at that point. Mm-hmm. And we never could have done it in the community that we were in. Our community mm-hmm. that was around us was so invested in the idea of us as a couple that they wouldn't have been able to come around the idea of us as separate. And mm-hmm. um, and that's what Sojourn Grace was able to do is go, oh, is this what you guys are doing? Great. Okay. We love you. We'll support yeah. you. What yeah. can we do? How can we love you well? Um, and I was in the same place, similar place to Anissa and that I was, I was pretty done. I had just come out of working at a mega church up in Portland and I was like, mm, I don't really need to do this anymore. And it was my ex-husband who, who had got started going to Sojourn Grace. So the night I met Anissa, um, <laughs> she was holding my daughter. My daughter was sitting on her lap <laughs> because yeah. they knew each other from this Bible study that, or small group or whatever they were doing that, uh, my husband at the time had been attending. I don't know what y'all doing. Enneagram stuff. Maybe we were, we were doing yeah, the Enneagram yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like um, an Enneagram small group and he was in it with us. So yeah. So my introduction to Anissa was coming into a room full of people I didn't know and my daughter being comfortable enough to just climb up on her lap and mm. sit with her, which was for some reason the thing seeing that happen made me feel safe in a space where I had the opposite experience when I first came into Sojourn Grace where I felt like there were not enough people and I couldn't hide. <laughs> no. And I was very much like, mm, if I come here, I'm going to have to like like these people and let them into my life and be friends with them. And I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if they are sane or safe. So yeah. uh, that for sane me. is debatable, but we are sane. <laughs> sane might still be debatable. Yeah. still up in the air, but I just joined him. But uh, so that didn't feel, and it's something about that very specific action of Anissa holding my daughter that, that kicked in the part of my brain that went, this is, you should lean into this. You should try this out. There's something good here. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I Sojourn Grace Collective for us is it is the most uh, evangelical I've ever been <laughs> without being <laughs> evangelical, which is so funny. But it's the first time I've ever been part of any sort of religious quote unquote church quote unquote uh, any sort <laughs> of intentional community that I have felt like it, I would be genuinely excited to tell someone else about it and bring them into yeah. it because I, oh, wow. I feel like there is just such a 
a beautiful, beautiful freedom in what happens to people when you just love them and let them be who they are. Mm. Um, just, I've never seen, you know, everybody talks about good fruit. I have never seen anything like it, like the way that I have seen people just blossom in being loved. Mm. And mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's, and myself included, it absolutely saved me. So yep. mm. yeah, magical <laughs> unicorn for sure. Yeah. I'm like, these exist, <laughs> right? I didn't know these existed. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things you guys, um, like I was reading your bios on the heathen website and all of you, all four hosts are talking about like going through a deconstruction. And then one of your slogans is like breaking up with bad religion. So f- yeah. for, for you two, um, especially like what, what got you to that point of deconstruction? I think Anissa, you kind of alluded to that already. And then for you, like, what does it mean or what does it look like to break up with bad religion? Do you want me to take the beginning yeah. of that since I had the sure. whole bad religion thing with Flamey in the beginning? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, when I signed on, I signed on season two to Heathen Podcast, actually. So uh, Flamey, who's one of our co-hosts, started it as Matthew uh, in the beginning of 2017. And um that bad religion tagline was there. And it's it's interesting. The first the first year I was co-hosting, I really wrestled with that phrase, bad religion. Like it felt really confrontational to me. It felt really um disrespectful because I grew up in um what I would call I you usually do call just like kind of classic American big box non-denominational mm. church, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Costco or Target of Christian churches. <laughs> and uh, you know, and um, and it was not a wholly negative experience for me. I fit really well. I'm a cis straight white girl and I sing. And so I was like a little worship leading, you know, 16 year old. And I fit really well in that environment. I felt like I belonged until I didn't. But it wasn't it wasn't a, a wholly negative way for me to grow up. There was a lot of good, a lot of community. I had a lot of fun at church camp. You know, There were a lot of things that I was really grateful for. So this idea of bad religion felt really scary to me. Um, and I've since kind of toyed with it and played with uh, my own resistance to using strong words um, and where that comes from. And I, I love now, I love that we come out and say, you know, we are opposed to bad religion. And mm. that doesn't mean that we are opposed to Christianity. It doesn't mean mm. that we are opposed to loving Jesus or loving the Bible or loving whatever your religious text is. It doesn't mean that we are opposed to religious people at all. We're never, ever, ever on board to cancel people. That's not what we're here to do. But we are absolutely loudly and unapologetically opposed to religion that fosters shame and that Mm -hmm. uses shame as a tool to manipulate, to control, and to um, keep people small. Like that, Mm. I have no problem now being real angry mama bear and calling (laughs) that bad. I will call it bad again and again. I think Mm. any weaponization of shame is bad. So Mm. my deconstruction story is long. It starts with blue like jazz, like so many do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mine too. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to him though, right? Donald Miller? Oh, I can tell you all about it. So (laughs) so what I did that's a little unconventional is I read blue like jazz. Then I moved to Portland, Oregon and started working at Imago Day, which is the church that Rick McKinley pastors that is part of 
Rick is in Blue Like Jazz, I became good friends with Tony Chris, who's Tony the Beat Poet in Blue Like Jazz and had dinner at his house every time. Like I just walked into the book and started living. <laughs> uh, nice. And then deconstructed beyond where Imago was. And that was right. that was a whole interesting thing. But that began my trajectory. The place where it fell apart for me with Imago was I couldn't reconcile being in a religious community that wasn't open and affirming anymore. That yeah. I just couldn't get there. I couldn't get there. I grew up, I'm a theater kid. And for my whole life, I'd been living right. in this hypocritical space of like, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I, I couldn't do it. Mm, I couldn't right. watch another friend, pastor, anybody weep over the loss of a person that they love because they couldn't just affirm mm, who yeah. they were wholly and mm. fully. I couldn't do it. And it didn't feel like God to me anymore. Um, So that moved me out of that and kicked me out of Portland. And, and here I am. So... That's the, the nutshell version of my deconstruction. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, for me, there's that, that, you know, I talked about that, that thread, like it really did feel like a sweater. I also say all the time that deconstruction for me was just, all, like, I feel like it was always coming because I read Blue Like Jazz in like college, you know, like when it came out, like, and I read all of those things, like, and I always kind of had this, so I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a nine on the Enneagram and I think I've always kind of held this space for like, I'm okay with whatever <laughs> and like, whatever you think. And I've always like had, that was kind of, I was kind of an, an I don't know. It felt like an anomaly in Southern Baptist land um, to just be okay with where people were at. But I didn't quite, I didn't quite understand it because I also definitely went through this like college, like I want to be like, everyone kind of telling me like talking about leadership and Christian leadership and ministry and like had these, this trajectory of Christian leadership that I was kind of always like supposed to be headed towards. And so I don't think like trying to reconcile my, like I'm okay with people as they are. I'm like open. <laughs> did it was hard to do when you're also supposed to be like telling people what they how to you know discipleship like that word like it's kind of triggering for me now but like mm. that kind of like trying to to train people and like you know I did youth group I was a youth group leader and then like I I um I did college ministry which is why I moved to Oklahoma um and so there was this part of me that always kind of just had a hard time telling people what they couldn't, couldn't believe, even in like those small, like within the confines of Christianity, you know, like we would get into conversations about speaking in tongues and like, I would have like people telling me that I like had to tell our students what to think about things. And that just never sat well with me. And, mm -hmm. um, but I kind of just let it all be for a really long time. And like I said, until I um, got pregnant with my daughter and then I just was like, I, I really started to wrestle with like, who, how do I want to raise human beings to be in this world? And what does that look like? And I started um, really just pulling that thread and, and starting to think about like, what if, what if all of this didn't matter? What if I'm still the same person um, without without Jesus, without church first, first it was without church for me, like, because that had such a strong, like pull of like, you have to be in church every Sunday. And, um, 
And so kind of dabbled with like, well, what if I went to brunch on Sundays <laughs> instead? And um, just slowly kind of discovering who I am as a spiritual person, like without all the confines and without being mm-hmm. told that, without feeling shame for what I wanted to do on a Sunday morning and how I wanted to spend my time. And um, that really did just kind of, lead me into this, into a more open place, like into a place where I don't need to pass judgment on other people. And I also don't need to pass judgment on myself for what I think and what I believe. Yeah. So for, I've heard you both say uh, two words that I, I keep coming back to you. You both said you were done at some point, <laughs> And then you both said you were done with bad religion and, you're obviously not alone. I mean, I just read a, a report um, from a political scientist that said uh, at least 8 million people left white conservative evangelicalism during the Trump administration. And I was like, wow, that's a good start. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a good start. But, you know, it, the the um, facade of conservative white evangelicalism was really pulled back for many of us who – either didn't want to admit it or were complicit in and or benefiting from uh, that version of Christianity. And yeah. obviously for you guys, you, you've seen it um, firsthand and you also saw it a little bit earlier than, than some of us, the patriarchy, the misogyny, the, mm-hmm. the racism, the white nationalism. I mean, you know, the, this weird belief based conformity that yeah. we are only together because we all believe the right things. And boy, as soon as you step <laughs> out of line, then you have yeah. to get the hell out. Right. Cause yeah. you're not safe. Right. So that's all the bad. That's I think what all of us want to be done with. Right. What, what have you replaced it with? Because there is a a more beautiful version of spirituality, but so many of us don't even know what it looks like. So yeah. can you paint that picture for us? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like there's this space of like, like, so one of the things I always wrestled with was trusting my, my own intuition, right? Like we talk mm-hmm. a lot about like that, <laughs> lean not on your own understanding. You know, I was told that my whole life yeah. and that I just couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust my heart. That I, whatever I wanted was not okay. Right. That was something that I really like internalized. And is, um, I think that for me, learning to, learning to really get into a place where I know myself and so meditation and spending time in nature and community. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to be told from an outside source how to be, I can look inside and just, and I'm okay. Like I can be okay with who I am and, I think that is kind of for me the start. Like that's been a that that was a lot of the start. Um, I went on a retreat. Um, my boys were probably they were really small, um, so probably about five, yeah, like almost five years ago, not quite. And um, I just like learned how to. I learned about awareness and this idea of like, can I stop and take a breath and like and feel my body? Can I stop and like learn, like 
And I listened to my body. Can I listen to what I'm, I need? What does my body need? That was like, that's such a big deal. And as a birth worker now, I know like that's, that's one of those things that I constantly am having to help other, help other people figure out how to do because you have that's it's a space where having babies it turns out is a place where you need to trust your intuition you Mm -hmm. need to learn how to you need to learn how to feel your body you need there's this awareness that that comes with that and there's a lot of resistance because it's not just in the church right it's this it's it's in the water right where it's it's all Mm -hmm. of it like you know um whether you're identify as christian or not like i think I found a lot of birthing people have a really hard time um, with that intuition, with feeling, with knowing themselves, with knowing what they need. And I think that starts. So, so for me, that's a starting place of, of spirituality. It's just like, who am I and what do I need? Like, can I ta- stop and take a deep breath? Can I stop and really feel my body and, and know where I am in this world? Um, because that that was trained out of me really fast. So I don't know, that's that's the starting place for me. Yeah. Yeah. When I hit my my I think a lot of people when they deconstruct, they go to a there's a point where God sort of dies. There's a, a crisis, a rock bottom point uh, for a lot of folks. And it's not necessarily a crisis for some folks. That's where they needed to get and they stay there. And for others, you know, it's a place that we kind of rebuild from. Um for me. I kept coming back to this metaphor of like God being a glass house and this, the, the theology that I was given for God, which was the theology of answers, not questions. It was the theology of, um, obedience over curiosity for sure from the beginning, right? That's why Eve mm-hmm. <laughs> is so evil is because she was curious about the knowledge of good and evil, right? So just this idea that <sighs> curiosity will ruin you. That will be literally the fall of all of humankind. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, this, that it, I just got to a crisis point where that felt so fragile. Like, why is God so fragile? Why can I break yeah. God so easily with a question? Why am I not allowed? If God is God, like if God is endless and infinite and good, like I've been taught that God is, then why is God who made me, if I'm the Imago Dei, why is God scared of my questions? Like, why is God, why does God need to punish me for having questions? Why can I think of questions that are too big for God if God is my creator? You know, like these, these are things that didn't make sense. So for me, the shift to healthy spirituality was shifting from a theology of answers to a theology of questions. And questions have become my doctrine um, as opposed to having the answers. And that was so scary for a long time because I was raised and taught that like the answers are your salvation. The answers are what get you into heaven. Jesus is the answer. And (laughs) having the right Sunday school answer is the thing. Um, And I just, I fundamentally don't believe that anymore. I believe in people asking good questions. I, I look for people who want to ask the same questions that I want to ask about the divine and how we understand God and and what that all looks like. And I trust that God is big enough that no matter what I do, I'm probably never going to get a holistic understanding of who or what God is while I'm here being a human on planet Earth with my biases (laughs) and my limitations. Um, But I can keep asking questions. And the freedom that that has given me to listen to other people's ideas about God without 
being low-key condescending the whole time <laughs> without being like, mm, <laughs> that's nice, but I know the real truth. The Bible says. Yeah. Um, to be able to listen to what they say and and you know, Flamey and I talk about this all the time. I like we believe things with people when they come into heathen. You know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. someone will come in and be like, "This is what I'm experiencing spiritually," and we're like, "Oh my gosh, that's beautiful! I love that! I can take this and I can try it on and I can play with it because I'm now convinced that like neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor questions can separate me mm -hmm. from being a loved child of God." And that for me has been such a transformational, freeing joyful experience. Mm. Mm. I can follow it anywhere. I can ask any mm. question and trust that wherever I go, if God is who God is theoretically, if God is, there's not going to be a path that can take me somewhere where God can't go. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's I beautiful. read a book. I read this book called The Sin of Certainty. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and no, that was a real... Oh yeah, I did. I missed that one. That and and that for, that was a really transformative thing for me to like have someone kind of, to to ex experience someone else's experience of being in that place of I have all the answers yeah. to what if it's what if I don't need all the answers yeah. like and what if I'm wrong Oh yeah, that too, right? <laughs> like what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? And and I I think that's a thing I talk when I talk to friends who are who are very concerned for my soul. And um, that's fine. Thank <laughs> you for your concern. <laughs> um, right. That I just kind of keep coming back to like, I'm okay. I'm okay with where you are. And being able to say like, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you're thinking. Like it doesn't stop me from hearing about your experience to be having my own experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, this is mine and it's fine. Like, and you don't, we don't have to experience it the same way for me to say, yeah, that's a, like to, to be with you. Yeah. Like the being with people and holding space for people where they're at. And, mm. you know, we don't have to land in the same place. Mm. Which is, you of know? course, where we always get accused of moral relativism, right? Um, well, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And they're not. And, you know, well, you guys don't believe in capital T truth. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest straw man <laughs> yep. arguments against progressive Christianity or post-Christian spirituality or whatever. Uh, however, anybody, I'm pantheistic, mystic, right? Thanks, Science Mike. Um, <laughs> however, anyone wants to identify. And, and for me, that always makes my skin crawl because I'm like, it is not, it is not that I don't, I believe that logically there is a capital T truth about the world, about God, about the universe. I'm just yeah. pretty okay with the fact that it's pretty unlikely that I, Karen Thurston, 100% <laughs> understand what that truth is. Like I am mm -hmm. open to the idea that I probably don't have it all figured out. <laughs> what? Well, and maybe... And maybe what if the capital T truth is just simply love, right? right? Yeah. Like if if love is the foundation of yeah. the universe, then maybe that's what capital T truth even looks like, what as opposed to being right about something, right. you know? As opposed to like a list of things you're supposed to do. And yeah. also like, wouldn't it be weird if everything there was to know about an infinite creative God could be contained in a couple thousand pages? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, Karen. It would be weird. <laughs> Writ- written by some very ancient tribal, um, you know, Patriarchs. incredibly patriarchal, <laughs> right. misogynistic people. Yes, and um, we haven't learned anything new. Who are also new. violent. We've learned yeah. <laughs> everything new about space and our own brains and our bodies, but we've learned nothing new about God somehow. Mm. And uh, <laughs> that God is the only area where we're not allowed to make progress, which yeah. seems strange <laughs> to me. But yeah. here we are. I guess that's why I, I co-host the Heathen Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing um, that we keep hearing, and it was part of our experience too, is like as you – walk away from that organized religion, that religion that claims to have all of capital T truth, um, is part of, part of why so many people have stepped away is because of it being tied now so directly to one political party and, mm-hmm. um, to that political party now, uh, I'm trying to say this nicely. Um, you, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, not for our sake, for granted. Uh, being, being very undeniably racist. Um, yeah. And seeing how not only during these last, I guess, five or so years, um, they they became even more brazen about it and even more um they they doubled down on it almost um and, and i think for so many of us that became a catalyst or a part of it or at least maybe it was like we were questioning we weren't sure and then seeing that like outright hatred mm-hmm. um just was like all right i've had enough um and obviously like you guys as the heathen podcast you have um, I love how you put it on your website, uh, an immigrant, a black woman, a drag queen, and a Karen on the show. <laughs> so you guys are incredibly diverse. You have very different experiences and identities now. So I, how does how does that play into your experience through deconstruction and then also your faith now or even the things that you're you're willing to like you said, use that harsh language against. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is where a lot of my, my fellow Karen stuff comes in. Um, <laughs> because uh, I, I grew up a cis white straight evangelical woman. And I think that we just talked about like a, a culture of answers, right answers in theology. And I think that, you know, for religion that, that says, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't, I think that American evangelical Christianity is more American than it is Christian most of the time. Yes. And that empire thinking, that capitalist thinking that, and it's that hero villain mentality. It's a Marvel comic, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have good guys and bad guys. And as long as we're in that binary, it becomes impossible. I think that that being taught to think that way, being taught to think that people are heroes and villains and being taught to struggle when people sin. I don't know how many times I've gotten an email from someone growing up where they're like, I just found out that my friend's friend is having an affair and I'm having a really hard time coming to terms (laughs) with the fact that they were sinning. Like that's hard for me to understand. And like what an interesting thing that is, that it's difficult for us. So we have this hero villain mentality which means that if we are doing something wrong, if we are sinning, we we can only be a hero or a villain. So if if mm. being racist 
if having racist tendencies, if existing in a racist system means that we have to be shifted into the villain category, it becomes very scary to say, oh, I might need to look at this in myself. Oh, I might need to do this work. Oh, I might need to confront places where I personally encounter this in my beliefs, in my being, in my everyday life. We can't just say, it becomes very hard. We have to sacrifice our goodness suddenly to admit that we need to do this work. So I think that especially Mm -hmm. white evangelical women who don't have any power outside of being like helpful and loving and hospitable, like this is what we're taught to be, right? And that's where our value comes from. And then Mm -hmm. you go into that and you say, well, actually you saying you just love everyone the same and that all lives matter and all of these things, that's actually not helpful. (laughs) That is perpetuating the harm. That is you are participating in this harmful system that sends that binary into this panic mode. And that's where you get this super, super fragile response, Mm. right? Of like, oh gosh, like it hurts me so much to consider. It's so hard for me to think that I could be this kind of person. Like I can't handle it. Um, And it makes it really, really hard for the church to look at the places that it needs to do this work because just looking at it is so threatening and so scary. Like, oh gosh, if we admit that we're not perfect in this way, the whole thing could come. It's that glass house thing, you know, the whole thing could come shattering down, Mm. which is such a fascinating detriment to even beginning the conversation. Mm. Because if I can't say to you in relationship, hey, this thing that you're doing is hurting my feelings without you going into a shame spiral, I never get to be heard. I never get to be heard when I say like, Mm. this is hurting me because I'm too busy dealing with your shame. Mm your shame crisis. We never actually get to the thing that you were doing that was hurting me. <laughs> yeah. I think the term, like the the word microaggression, like, I don't know if people like know that like language, but that for me, like kind of sums up my like experience growing up. You know, like we, you talk about like, yeah, like the last four or five years, this has been this experience and people are waking up and they're seeing these things and then they're trying to deal with like and come to terms with like well how do I do this work can I talk about this no we're gonna double down on it um Mm -hmm. but going like people start talking about like their the the experiences that they're having I'm like yeah this is my this is my whole life in the church like I you know growing up and being on teams where I'm crossing like the, that intersection of being a woman. So I can't actually lead anything and being a black woman where like, well, I'm not going to be in any, I'm, I'm really going to be the poster child for diversity, like right. spending time. Well, you can in, at least be on the worship team, right? Yeah. Cause you must oh, be able yeah. to sing, of course. Yeah, right. Of course, right. <laughs> I mean, I was in every, I went to a small ba- Baptist university and I was in for four years. I was in every like photo shoot that they did. I was like, you can't find any other black people in this school (laughs) (laughs) to do this. Like, you know, just these, this tokenism type thing where it's like, no, no, no. In the name of diversity, we want to have, I had a, um, I had a boss, I had a boss in uh, that said to me, like, you know, like we want, we want there to be, we want a more diverse group of students to come to our, um, whatever they did, their like worship service, their weekly worship service. And so he turns and looks at me, he's like, so Anissa, I want you to be um, an MC. Now I have a theater background too. So I love being an MC. That kind of is, that's fun for me, but 
and I, it took me a long time because there's a lot of in, just that internalization and not realizing it. Like he did not want me to be this MC because I was good at what I do. Cause I was really good at what I did. He wanted me to do it because I was, because he wanted them to see that we were diverse. And I'm like, we're not mm-hmm. diverse. When you look around this room of people who are actually calling the shots, I don't get a say like ever. <laughs> and when I do speak up, I get called out for being too strong and, um, you know, like being too loud, um, being told <laughs> and I, you know, like there's not actually any diversity of thought or in mm. a race in this room. Like I'm sitting in a room with white men. Like I am the, like, and then there's another woman and she's a white woman and that's, but you don't listen to her either to be fair. Like, but it, right. you know, and, and the getting passed over and that trajectory that I, wanted to be on like I I was really like man this would be I would love I would have loved to have done college ministry to have my own call you know to been a college pastor like I was totally would have loved that but I Mm. every I got stopped at every turn every Mm. (laughs) every person that was I interned with and I was on staff at this particular university in their collegiate ministry. All of, all of the white men, they all got sent to seminary. Sent. not They didn't pay a cent for it. They all got sent to, sem- to seminary. And they all have their own college ministries or have now become pastors. Like, it's, it's insanity to me. And I didn't, like, it was this, like, watching people move up that hierarchy, that ladder, uh, in Christian mm-hmm. ministry and, and being told that I couldn't do it and, and, and being blatantly told sometimes like this because I was single or because I was a woman or because, you know, and that there was a lot of that, like, just, not, you know, not being like, there's a lot of microaggressions that kind of, you get a lot of these things coming at you. And for me, like being in predominantly white spaces, I just, how do I, what do I do? Again, my tendency, especially at the time, was to like laugh it off, you know, mm. or to kind of just say like, I don't know, what am I, what do I do? I Do I make it awkward? There are no, I'm alone here, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so how, where do you go from there, right? Mm. So those are just like, that was kind of that environment for me. So then to kind of come, to, to come out of it um, and to be having our world be, you know, to have all of the things that are happening and that, and then, you know, on top of that now, like the Trump administration and that (laughs) whole, it was just like, I started seeing people who have told me my whole lives, how much they loved me and how much, you know, just, and that they start telling me these things about like, I don't see, you know, well, I don't see color. I don't see it that way. And I'm like, well, then you don't see me. You just don't see me. And I've been with you this whole time and you didn't see me. And now when it's for sure really harmful, you want to tell me still that it doesn't matter. So, yeah, well, or, or, or worse, like you join hands in worship with those same people on Sunday and then they are actively working against you in public policy and economic decisions. Yes. Um, on a daily basis and then can come back to you and smile at you with with this white patronage on Sunday. And, oh, we're so glad you're here. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, yeah. and I think even that in that's, the church, not just like well, that's what I mean. Policy, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, and so I want to talk a little bit about that because, um, you know, I, I would say that in many ways I am very thankful for the Trump administration and for the carnage that it left, as well as the exposure to a movement that has been so predominant. And um, I'm, I'm currently reading Anthea, but- Anthea Butler's book, White Evangelical Racism. And she she says, evangelicalism isn't simply a religious group after all. Rather, it's a nationalistic political movement whose purpose is to support the hegemony of white Christian men over and against the flourishing of others. And, and I think that statement is incredibly true. So Anissa, I want to talk to you about your work in birth justice and uh, birth e- uh, equality. And in particular, um, that makes me remember or think about that beautiful story in the Old Testament where, you know, Shifra and Pua are um, subverting and disobeying Pharaoh's orders to, you know, get rid of the, the Hebrew children. And, and, and I do feel like that we've... Um, We've created a a religion that is an imperial religion, and it supports the status quo. And the status quo is white men, and yet your work in in birthing justice is in many ways subverting that narrative. Um, is that driven by your Christianity, and and what does that look like for you as it relates to your hands and feet movement in 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 being a part of a social justice movement that is the very antithesis of white American Christian imperialism? Yeah, and I know I, that was a lot. Sorry. Ooh, no, <laughs> no, I think no. Anissa, I think we should change your website to say the antithesis of white American <laughs> imperialism. Like, whatever that last bit was, that's the new tagline. Right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, okay, so for me, this is like part of part of this is birthed out of my my own experience, right? Like there's the I had a baby and it I had amazing care and it all went it went totally not the way I thought it was gonna go. Um and I found myself going from well not I had midwifery care. And it was amazing and wonderful. And then I got sick and I wound up in the hospital at the end of my pregnancy. And all of a sudden I was, I was kind of thrust into this system where um, I had no say. I, I was had less of a say, right? Like I don't, I had people telling me what I had to be doing and what I need. And on one hand, like you want, you want that, right? You want people doing their jobs to save people's lives. But the Catalyst for me was I, um, I, w- I had to go into this doctor's office and I had, I just was completely dismissed with the things that were going on. I was just told, I was basically like everything that had happened to me, like I didn't, it was just kind of dismissed. And then I, I turned, I got in the car. I was just told that I like, they didn't listen to me at all. I, I and I had my blood pressure that was like crazy high. And I turned around, I got in my car and I went to my midwife's office and she looked at me and she was like, did they send you here this, like with this? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, what? On Like, and it was kind of that, like, I didn't know anything really at the time. This is like almost seven years ago. Um, and it kind of, for me, like that difference, that stark difference between how I was being cared for, right? Like I had somebody who was looking out for me. I had some on one hand and someone who totally, who was some, who has taken an oath 
as far as I'm aware, to take care of people, look at me and just dismiss everything that I, mm. that was going on with me. And, and it, and it really could have killed me. And I had the, thankfully I had a person stand up for me and then help me like figure out what was going on and really, um, and, and I, it was what we would call in birth world, a near miss. Like I, I could have died. <laughs> I didn't. Mm. That is not true of, for so many people, the maternal mortality rate in our country, it, like black women are three to four times more likely to die from childbirth related complications than their white counterparts. That is a real statistic in our country. It is insane. And, and, when they started doing the work to lessen the the things that were causing the mater- maternal mortality rates, it, the gap only grew for Black women. So it wasn't about, um, you know, like they didn't have, they weren't wealthy enough. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't education. When there's like there was a report that was done um, by the CDC, and it's they were talking about how like 700 women died each year between. It was 2011 and 2015. And three out of five of those pregnancies were, they were preventable. And it had to do with them missing things because there's like, there's a, there's a long trajectory of birth work being shifting from being midwife driven from being people who are like them taking care of each other, them listening, this holistic approach to moving into to moving into a really a white male dominated physician approach that where people aren't listened to and mm-hmm. black women in particular, not being listened to about life threatening complications, like, and being, and learning, you know, physicians being like learning like that. Oh, well, black women like can tolerate pain better than white women. Like that's oh. something that, you know, and you're just like, wait, what? You know, when so when someone comes to you and tells you that they don't feel well, or that they don't that they, you know, this is this feels off. Those numbers may, you know, maybe my blood pressure is not as high as you would think it would be for this complication. But like, can you run some blood work? And they just dismiss you, or they want to know why you want to do it. And you're like, because I need to know. I want to know what's going on with my body mm-hmm. and my baby, and then it's too late. And then, you know, and so there's this whole system that is just perpetuating itself. And then on, you know, so then there's um, birth work and people who want to be helping families navigate the system and navigate and have someone who's like not having a baby be able at, at the time, be able to look a doctor in the eye and say, no, they need help. This, these are the warning signs. And so having someone say, like, to stand up for you. So that that's one of the things that I do, that I get to do, and particularly with regarding hope, is, you know, I started looking at how much support and help I had in a system that was just really, like, messed up and how it was still hard for me. And I said, okay, mm. well, I, I, I had been working with um, teen parents. How are these young parents... Like, how are they going to afford the support? Because at this point, like, you know, a midwife costs like anywhere from like $2,500 to like $6,000, right? So how are they going to get care from people, from someone that's going to listen to them? Um, a, a doula, 
doula is like a thousand dollars. Who's paying for their thousand dollar doula mm. so that they can have that person in the room to say, I, I, I've been in a room where a young girl wants to breastfeed her baby. And I've had a, a nurse walk in and just say like, oh, just give your baby formula because that's you're just not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to keep up with it. So don't even try. And I'm like, I'm sorry. That is not a thing that we're doing in this room. <laughs> You know, mm. and to be able to step in and say, no, I'm here for you. I'm going to support you. For one, you're going to leave this place and you're, no one's going to talk to you again for six weeks. They're just going to like, like, good luck. So good there's luck. that. Have fun with the baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, they, I just realized that they didn't have that advocacy and I wanted to be able to give it away. For me, birth equity is about, making sure that Black families, that young families, that LGBTQIA families, that they have the support that they need when they need it the the most. They really need it in this vulnerable space where they're sleep deprived. They don't, they're having this new human and they, they really need someone to come to be with them to say, okay, yeah, this is normal. You don't have to do that. In midwifery care, we tell people all the time, all of this is your choice. We make sure that you know the risks and the benefits and have true informed consent about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And sure, sometimes interventions are necessary. And most people want life-saving interventions, right? But they don't want to be bullied and pushed into doing things that they they didn't want to do because there's a power structure. And so many times the power structure is white male dominance. It's that it's, it's doctors that don't want you to take childbirth class because then you will just know too much. I've had doctors say that, like, you don't need to take it. You'll just, you'll know too much. How wow. is it possible to know too much? Of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> so, so at Reho, what I do is take, you know, I take this like thing that feels inaccessible and I give it away to young families so that they can start their families off in a, and feeling empowered, mm. feeling like, you know, they didn't, they don't need us to have pity on them. <laughs> you know, they need to be empowered to make choices as parents that will help their families thrive. And so, so that's what I do with Rehope. And, you know, I'm in school to be a midwife because even, even my job as a doula has, has its limits, you know, because I have to go in and fight for people. I have to like go in with them and I have to like do the advocate thing. And like, and I thought, man, what if I could just, what if I could just give them the care that they deserve on the front end? Like, what if they didn't have to like, fight for what they wanted, you know, and, and yeah, that subversive thing that midwives do where we just are here saying like, you're in control here. <laughs> it's your body. Um, this is your family. These are your choices. How I'm going to listen to you when a family says, when a, when a birthing person says that something feels off, it's that intuition piece. We go back and we say like, okay, well you call me if you know you have any of these warning signs and we give them a list but also but also if you just feel weird if you feel like something's off call me they don't have to call and talk to like 15 other people they get to call their midwife 
mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think that there's something about that, like people don't, they don't always realize that they have that access, right? They have that support that they, um, they start to feel like, well, no, I, no one's going to listen to me. And that's one of those things that I really want to see change. And I think that, and, and we know that we, there, there are studies that have been done that we know that race and racism, that racism has played a huge part in those maternal mortality rates for Black women, specifically for Native and Alaskan women. Like the, those maternal mortality rates are atrocious as well. And we know that some of those things, but we can change that with midwifery care. We know that. And also midwives deserve to be paid, right? Like, I mean, at some point, my four children need to eat food. So, so that's where we're kind of like trying to figure out like, what does this look like? How can, how can people get on board and see like this, there's these things that we've, you know, the CDC is reporting on. I don't know. We can't really argue with that. Right. I mean, I guess we can People have been arguing (laughs) the CDC all year, but you know, like there've been studies on, there've been reports. There's like all of these things that we can look in the face and say, okay, well, something needs to change. What can I do to change that? Yeah. You know, how can I, how can I be a part of this, this one small piece of birth equity mm-hmm. of making sure that everybody's heard and everyone's listened to, yeah. I don't care how you give birth. That isn't, you know, like, I know there's a lot of like those, like, like there's movements for those kinds of things, like, and how you should give birth and where you should give birth. I don't care. I want people to feel safe and supported mm-hmm. yeah. and listened to. Yeah. I think, I think this is. This goes back to kind of, I mean, it's not only the church, but the, that attitude of like, you just submit to authority and you, yes. you listen to what that person who's in authority over you tells you. And, and then the yeah. patriarchy piece of like, well, you're a woman and men know better than women and all that. And, and so I love that you're like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not a feminist marching in DC to topple, uh, male authority and patriarchy, but you're like, I'm going to make a difference in the lives of women. And I'm going to push back against that authority and say like, no, this isn't what's best for these women. And this isn't what, um, they need. And they need someone to listen and be there for them and changing the lives of the people right in front of you, which is, Mm -hmm. which is huge. I mean, I, I'm not even a black woman, but as a woman, um, who's had different, female reproductive problems, um, mainly uh, crazy, insane um, pain at certain times and just being totally dismissed as just like, well, you just have a low pain tolerance. And so here, you know, (laughs) that's my experience. I haven't even had a child, you know, I can't even imagine what these women feel. And so I love that you're pushing in, in your own small way, but in a way that makes a difference in your community now. Um, And, and so we've kept you way longer than we should have. <laughs> and I, I feel like we could talk about this so much longer, but we, we try to end by ta- asking everyone um, the hope question. So, so for, for both of you in your experience and they're different experiences, but you guys have come together now in this beautiful space called heathen through your different experiences and from your different vantage points, is there anything that gives you hope for the future of faith? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, 
to cap off this conversation and bring it back into faith, I think faith is, you know, one of the classic arguments in, in different faith traditions is if faith without works is dead, faith with, you know, blah, blah, blah. What is, what is <laughs> faith, right? But if, if we all can kind of loosely agree that, that faith is both a, a belief in something and a desire to see a more, a more just, loving, and equitable world, right? Mm-hmm. I think that what gives me hope I was I was raised, I was taught that colorblind was the way to go. I was taught that this is what I should say. I should say I just don't see color and that by just erasing the problem, that would solve it. And what gives me hope is the more time we actually spend in community listening to each other and just listening, listening without jumping into shame spiral, listening without jumping into defense, just listening and hearing the more the more stories you collect, the more stories that are shared through holy heretics, through heathen, through whatever, the more that goes out there, the closer we get to being able to feel safe, having conversations that threaten what we were taught, what we believe, that make us feel really fragile. And the more safe we feel, the closer we get to being able to do something. And that gives me hope. So it gives me hope that Anyone out there, my fellow Karens, heart of my own hearts, who who were raised to to have this sort of colorblind mentality, who maybe listened to this today and have something now that they've heard for the first time. Maybe it's just you pull that one statistic. Maybe it's you pull that black women in America are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts, right? Maybe we just pull that. So the next time you hear anything and you're tempted to respond by making it this like super spiritual, big zoomed out thing of like, I don't see color. I just, I know I'm not racist. I don't see maybe what can confront that tendency, that desire is if you don't see color, then you can't see those black women who are three to four more times more likely. So if I want to see them, if I want to see this problem, and if I want to be able to do something about it practically, I have to resist that defensive temptation to go back into this. I just don't see it. And I have to say, okay, now I have this one thing that I can see. And it's a, a small and practical way to kind of get into the, oh, I get, I don't know how to see this whole big thing, but I can see this. I can see mm-hmm. this and I can do something about this. I can learn more about this. And then it's just a matter of practice, right? We just practice. We keep practicing until we get to a place where we can own that it's not that hard. It's not that hard to listen and to try to see each other. And we owe each other that much. That gives me hope, those little pieces, mm-hmm. those little gateways. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what gives me hope is, you know, I get to get to work every day and um, be a part of, be a part of what's changing and be a part of really making a difference in people's lives. And for me, that that feels really hopeful, you know, and to know that there's one less person that's going to experience trauma and who's going to feel heard and listened to, like, that's really, that really feels hopeful, you know? Um, and that, because I think that trauma piece is such a, it's such an important part. And I want, I, I love seeing the peace and the, just the connectedness of a, of a a new family that's starting, that's feeling heard and supported and loved. And, um, makes me feel really hopeful that, Mm -hmm. you know, that people can, that we can do this. This, this can be done. You know, this Mm -hmm. is not impossible. Mm -hmm. 
Love it. And yeah. All right. So that was our last um, serious question. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we also, not just the hope question, but we also like to end with some rapid fire questions that are just like top of mind, you know, first thing that comes um, just to, you know, get to know you guys a little bit more. So okay. is that all right? Can we, can we end with that? You, you sure. Bring it on. All right. Okay. So first question for, for both of you. Um, if you're stuck at home on a rainy Saturday, which I guess never happens in Saturday. <laughs> because, you know, we get really excited. When it place. Does. Yeah. So if that, 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 that one Saturday a year when it rains, what's your go-to TV show that you just kind of go to and just watch over and over oh, again? Gosh. Oh, show over a TV show over and over again. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> new girl. Mm, okay. Oh, really? I like it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have guessed that. That makes me happy. Yeah. Gilmore Girls is my most watched show. Mm. It is the show I have watched <sighs> yeah. the most times through. Yeah. Uh, I get so. it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. What's yours, Melanie? What's oh, yours? I don't I don't rewatch shows. I always want something. What? New. Yeah. Oh, oh. Man, we've got we, we need to have an episode just on that. That's a bit of a pathology. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my husband tells me. <laughs> He's always like, why, why can't we rewatch this one? I'm like, because we've seen it. Why, why do we need to rewatch it? <sighs> okay. So, Anissa, this question is for you. All right. You mentioned in your bio that you love video games. So what kind of games do you like? And what game are you playing these days? If you ever have time. Since you <laughs> okay, have so small ones. I love video games so much. Um, we just bought a Switch, and so I've been mm. super into Animal Crossing, but my kids have commandeered it, so I actually have been playing Forge of Empires on my phone. Mm. <laughs> mm. Nice. I have no idea what that is, but that's awesome. <laughs> All I ever get to play is Adopt Me on Roblox. So, oh, I mean, we need to play something else. Seriously. <laughs> Animal Crossing. Yeah, hook me up. Oh. Pac-Man, Frogger, that, that's as cool as I get. So. Oh, man. We are apparently a weirdly gaming family over here. So, <laughs> Well, games were like, video games were like, you know, maybe from the devil in my home. <laughs> so we didn't really oh. play them, you know? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, Karen. Uh, this one's for you, Karen. Right. So tell us your Enneagram number without telling us your Enneagram number. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one. Oh gosh, I just really, really hope that you guys are impressed with me when we get Oh no, you're a three. <laughs> hey, I'm married to a three and I love the threes. Yeah. I, I don't I don't have the strategy and like win kind of mentality like you guys do. And I'm always just like in awe of like how did they just bunch. do that? Well, yeah. I've definitely learned about like how threes go to nine and stress this past year because I've done, uh. like I've been the least productive of my life for this last year. <laughs> I'm just like whoop a doop a doop. Oh right, this is what this is like. <laughs> Look at that. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time. I, I think that sorry, I'll try not to say like four thousand words on the enneagram. I feel like threes though are often. Like it's that ambition that's focused. Straight A students, class president, blah blah blah, and. Um, it took me a long time to figure out I was a three uh, because mm. I was a three conditioned to be like kind of an evangelical helper too um, um, and to not really have my own ambitious goals. Uh, it took me a long time to type mm. correctly. So mm. it was an interesting thing to discover that, oh, yes, this 
oh, this, this fits. This is what I am. This is well, mm. what I use anyhow. So, hmm. Okay. So this question is for both of you. What's your spirit animal? <laughs> we did an episode of the Heathen podcast a long time ago. Uh, gosh, several years ago now where we went uh, to figure out what our like animal guide was we had a um a shamanic practitioner come in mm-hmm. and do I want to listen to that a hypnosis thing at test <laughs> she is she is a an absolute delight and you know I am I'm not a Native American so I don't have a deep understanding of of spirit animal and what the the significance of that spirituality is but we did go and do this sort of look into um what our our I don't remember the the term that she used, but it was to to figure out who our animal guide was. And mine was a tiger. I went into it's the first time I've ever felt like I'd been hypnotized, first of all, which was a whole thing because threes, you know. And um <laughs> yeah, first time I ever felt like I I wanted being hypnotized. And um it, I where I wound up was in the middle of a city with this big, big white tiger. And that was very surprising. Hmm. That's not what I would have guessed. So wow. wow. Yeah. That's, that's cool. My big white tiger friend. Who knew? I've literally been thinking this whole time. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, ooh. What animal reads a lot? It's that one. The sloth. Yes. (laughs) I feel like I could be a sloth. (laughs) Well, no, Karen, it's funny because my wife did the same thing with our Mm. spiritual director, and he led her on a series of of journeys Mm. in a meditative state, and the stag kept coming up. Oh, interesting. Um, And in in Celtic spirituality, it has a very specific persona and meaning, and it completely fits her. So I'm like, yeah, this this stuff is real. It's actually kind of cool. I did a lot of reading into the the symbolism with tigers afterwards, and I was like, oh, Mm, even if this wasn't, like – accurate i would take it like i, I want yeah, exactly. to have it, so it's exactly. mine now <laughs> yep. yeah i was gonna say i would I, I think i would say that my patronus would be a bear but I, that's that's maybe diving diving too deep into harry potter right now so mm. <laughs> hey i love it i'm all for it <laughs> yeah. all right last question for both of you if you had to slum it like the rest of us and not live in san diego where <laughs> <laughs> where else in the u.s would you want to live where do you want to go, Anissa? Taos, New Mexico. This is not a question. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm in Albuquerque. You are? Yeah. Yo, so yeah, I'm a I'm a Taos girl. I think Taos is actually my spirit. Like my, I think that's where it resides. Um, mm. I love it there. It's like magical and artsy and perfect, and I can see myself there for yeah. Mm. I love it there. Mm. I lived in Portland for a decade and I loved it. So I wouldn't mind going back to Portland. Um, But the plan, we actually have a a plan now where I would love to move up to uh, Lake Arrowhead, which is just a couple of hours from here, but it's up in the mountains. Mm. It's this like sweet little mountain town and Mm. um, just like hide from the rest of the world up there. feels really nice to me. So I know the West is the best, right? It's just, there's something about it. I'm a California kid. Beautiful. Yeah. Like I was I was born and raised in California and it's hard to uh it is hard when you've lived like my I've lived in San Jose, California is where I grew up, and then I moved up to Portland and now I'm in San Diego. So it's kinda like it's a, as a 
as a liberal human being. It's like, where else do I go? Yeah. <laughs> like, right? yeah. Just just stay there. You're yeah, fine. I think I'll just pretty much yeah. stay put. Well, guys, this has been incredible. Um, thank you so much. I feel like we're best friends now. Um, <laughs> heretics, heretics and heathens, we always go together. So. Heretics and heathens party. unite. <laughs> yeah. So for all of our listeners who want to know more about you guys, about your podcast and your work, where can they find more of you uh, online? Yeah, well, you can find everything about our podcast pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. But heathenpodcast.com will, will tell you all about us. And then we are anywhere you stream, you've got coming up on we're in our fifth year it's coming up on five years of material you can go back and dive through um me personally uh you can find me on my website is just karenthurston.com and that'll take you to everywhere and everything uh that i do in the world and um you can also always join us for we do heathen happy hour every thursday night live on facebook and youtube which oh, is nice. a ridiculous sing-along sort of song request hour with th- three of us on camera and denisa running hilarious commentary in the <laughs> in the comments and trying to wrangle all of her children at the same time so if you like 90s like pop hits come on down we'll oh, be there man. and then anisa yeah and if you you can find me on the internet as well with if you want to know more about birth justice work um rehope you can go to rehopeinc.org and um find more about what we do with that there. And I'm also on, you know, Instagram and Facebook as little star birth services, SD. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, that's where you can find me there. And in the comments of heathen happy hour. <laughs> and if you do nothing else, come find us on Instagram at heathen podcast and come hang out. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm going to make sure to link to all of that in the show notes so people can find it easily. Um, but ladies, thank you so much. This was like, so fun. Well, and just great. such a beautiful conversation. And um, it was wonderful to hear your hearts and and how you've grown through your experiences. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Yeah. yeah Thanks thank for you. having you guys, us. You guys are wonderful. This has been lovely. That is it for this week, but that's not it for Heathen. Next week, we will be chatting with the other two co-hosts, Flamey Grant and Ben Grace, about leaving hardcore fundamentalism, what it was like to grow up LGBTQIA plus in the evangelical world, and what exactly community should and should not be. Trust me when I say that this conversation is going to be phenomenal. So make sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you don't miss the next episode. And do be sure to check out their show as well, Heathen Podcast. The conversations they're having over there are truly incredible. And if you're still listening, don't forget to check out our course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. You can find all the info about it by heading to www.sophiasociety.org. That's Sophia with a P-H. So S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. And then tap the announcement bar on the top. And we hope to see you at the course. And we also hope to see you next week. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 